Hi, this is India, and you're listening to Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. This podcast highlights the personal and professional journeys African descendants take daily as they navigate the world around them. Episodes feature topics and conversations with guests that are timely and intelligent while still being funny and cool. If you enjoy listening to Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are an Apple Podcast user, be sure to leave a review. You may also email us at journeys, B as in black, the number two, B as in beautiful, at gmail.com. You may also follow Journeys of Belonging to Blackness on Facebook and YouTube. Really excited about the episode you're about to listen to. So now let's get into it. Joining us today is Dr. Michelle Sims Burton. Michelle is a retired university professor of American literature and African-American studies and women's studies, where she taught at University of Michigan and Howard University. She is an author, editor, social media advisor, content provider, certified instructional systems designer, and photographer. Michelle continues to lecture throughout the world about topics pertaining to African-American history and culture. She's currently working on two projects. The first is a project on Black midwives in Fairfax County during slavery, and the second is a presentation on the life of Toni Morrison, which will be at the Smithsonian in February of 2020. Welcome, Michelle. Hey, how are you? Thank you so, for such a kind introduction. Oh, <laughs> well, for a kind individual who's, who's just doing so many things and is just doing a phenomenal job at all of them. Well, thank you. Well, you know me, Michelle. I'm always intrigued by a new project, particularly if it relates to the lives and experiences of African descendants and even more mm -hmm. broadly, people of color globally. So your presentations, discussions, and writings, whether the topic is on the life and writings of James Baldwin, a jazz great, alive or deceased, or just ones that are in your short stories on African-American life, they mm -hmm. always reveal a particular analytic and historical perspective on race, gender, and social class that I truly enjoy learning from and reflecting on. And I'm sure other people find that the case too. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I particularly enjoy speaking to individuals like yourself who just seem so grounded, so sure, and so unapologetically Black. Yeah, yeah, I try to be. You try to be. <laughs> That's who I am. <laughs> and I wonder, how did this person get here? Like, what was their journey like? Yeah. What do they do? Why do they do what they do? And I'm just not only interested in the stories people tell, but their journey too. So that's why this podcast is called Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Yes. Well, let me share my story with you. I reflected on that for a minute this morning and really thought really profoundly on how did I get to be who I am? And I'm going to say two things. I'm going to give full attribution to my mother, who was a New Yorker, a reader, 
She's a New Yorker. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By way of Pennsylvania, but she moved to New York at nine years old. So I'll I'm claim her. Claim I'll New claim Yorker, her. all right. Um, who was, you know, thoroughly grounded in the arts and literature and dance and music. She danced for Catherine Dunham. Uh, she dropped out of college, didn't marry my father, and didn't return until she was older. But, you know, she always had us surrounded by books. There was just books everywhere. In fact, people would jokingly say, if you want a book, don't go to the library, go to Shirley Sims' house and get the book. Uh, and she put my siblings and I in predominantly white schools when I was in the second grade. Mm. Um, and she told me, you're there to get an education and that's it. You don't have to be socialize with them. You don't have to be integrated with them. Well, that's a little hard for young children to endure. But it caused me to like structure myself so that, you know, that the whole thing of we always have to be twice as good, which is so detrimental to our health. But I was that kid. So for example, if there was an exam, I always got the highest score. Um, I got one B on my report card. It was in handwriting. I found out who got the A, the white girl who got the A and practiced her penmanship so I could have an all A report card. That was me. I functioned that way until probably the 11th grade, and then I had burnout. And I made a conscious decision to pull back. So there goes the Ivy League school. There goes the all-A, B report cards. I was in chemical biological studies, so it's kind of hard to have all-A's in that curriculum in high school. And then I floundered for a while. I danced. I wrote poetry. Um, I became the artist. And all I asked my father to do was like, why aren't you rich so I can travel around the world? <laughs> for the rest of my life. And so my mother dedicated Holland Oates, She's a Rich Girl, to me on the radio one time because I just wouldn't get it together. What, what The constant in my life was always my sense of being of African descent, being a Black woman in the U.S., and negotiating all that, and then reading and writing. Those are the con constants in my life. No matter what I do, I always have that identity, uh, sometimes to my detriment, and but I always read and write, no matter what. No, that's interesting. And I end throughout the program, you'll help to peel back the layers of the onion a bit for us, mm -hmm. you know, particularly how, how your story of your early childhood is contextualized within the sort of geographic space of Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that's, that's poignant for folks to understand, you know, all right, why you're even saying what you're saying about the schools that you attended and all that. Yeah. yeah well, just, people often forget, you know, when we talk about the integration of the schools and, and racism and that kind of violence that occurred, people want to go to Arkansas, Little Rock, they want to go South. And then they have Boston in their mind. It's the, sort of the Northern story, but people rarely talk about the violence of Detroit. And after, it wasn't until the riots that there was white flight out of Detroit. The 1967 rebellion is what we really call it. But prior to that, walking into white spaces in Detroit could be deathly. One of the things that Coleman Young did, who was the mayor under you know my childhood, was that he dismantled what was called stress, which was Four white cops in a police car, unmarked police car, out of uniform, who would just pull up, jump out of the car and throw any black person down on the sidewalk, mm -hmm. crack, you know, smash their face into the sidewalk and draw their, their guns. And the first thing that he did was dismantle stress. So we were able, after he dismantled stress, to kind of walk through the city with a degree of freedom that we hadn't had prior to that. And, and also, um, he instituted a residency requirement for all city workers. So that meant now the police force was comprised of people who actually lived in the neighborhood and people who, whom we knew. And that changed the dynamic. So I always jokingly say, you know, in Detroit, we had a kind of freedom coming up under Coleman Young that is probably unprecedented within the U.S. 
And particularly at that time, right? Yeah, and, at that historical moment in the 70s, yeah. And so when you have that context of growing up in Detroit and then you have your home life context with, I mean, I didn't even realize that your mom danced professionally, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the choices that she made as a woman to raise you and your siblings and how that has informed even just why you do what you do. I mean, I, I feel like we're just at the beginning of <laughs> yeah, what I are. like well, I like to call, well, what is your call to adventure? Act one, call to adventure. My call to adventure, oh, doing everything. Wow. I, you know, I used to jokingly when I taught, tell my students I have ADHD. So when I go off on the tangent, just reel me back in. <laughs> um, because I'm, because one of the things my mother instilled in us was just curiosity. You know, follow mm-hmm. your curiosity. And she used to jokingly say also, if you can't make a living without having to go to a nine to five every day, there's something wrong with you. While she's at home and my dad is hitting the pavement every morning going to a nine to five. I used to think that was hilarious and, and kind of like contradictory in itself. But what she was trying to do was empower us to follow our passion. So while she never steered me towards anything, and I used to bemoan the fact that she wouldn't give me structure. Um, I'm glad that she didn't. My father was a structured person and my mother allowed all four of her children to just follow their passion. And it worked out fine for me. In your in the intro, I listed so many things. I listed professor, I've listed um, photographer, I've listed content provider, so many hats you wear. But mm-hmm. when you sort of think about all the things that you do professionally, intermix the things that you do also personally, how did you become interested in being all of these things? I, I presume, of course, your mother was an inspiration. But if you think back to your childhood and growing up, like what motivated you to become, I'm going to be a professor that's, you know, teaching and doing research and writing and scholarship in these particular areas. I'm going to become this expert on James Baldwin, where you're on radios talking about Baldwin. You are, how did you become interested in doing this sort of work? I don't have to go back to my mother. She was like, she used to jokingly say she was a jack of all trades and master of none, but she could do anything. She could write, she could draw, she could play piano, she could dance, she could cook. She could mentor all the wayward kids in the neighborhood. She could be the psychologist to the neighbor. Uh, One time a kid cut his arm and my mother tied a tourniquet. I didn't even know she knew how to do that and got that kid to the hospital and saved his arm. You know, stuff like that. So when I look back on it, believe it or not, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a lawyer at 10. And then I wanted to be a dancer. So I danced semi-professionally with Detroit City Dance Company. And then my girlfriend talked me out of being a lawyer and going to graduate school to get a PhD. And I was, oh, and I also wanted to be a doctor. I got to put that on there too, because when I was in high school, I was in chemical biological studies and all of us were tracked for medical school. But I quickly gave that up when I hit my college level physics class as the only girl in physics. And Mm. then really gave it up when I hit organic chemistry. It's like, okay, I'd rather sit in the library and read all day. So all these sort of avenues that I've taken stem from things that were put in me as a child. So for example, James Baldwin, he came to the house when I was a kid. and used to sit and talk to my mother with Mark Crawford. You know, and for years, my I, of course, that's a trace memory because I was so young, but my mother always talked about Baldwin and Mark Crawford is, of course, a civil rights journalist. You know, she always painted these beautiful stories because she was quite a storyteller. And I said, mm, that sounds interesting. And so when I got an opportunity in graduate school and then as a professor to study and teach Baldwin, I did. It's just kind of like, I don't know, just 
it, it feels so innate. And I know it's constructed, it's not innate, but it feels so innate. I really can't like tease out where all this comes from. Now that's really important. And I'm, and, and, you know, maybe I'm, I can be a little bit of a person who likes famous people, but it's like, you had Jimmy Baldwin up in your house? Like, yeah, as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and you also know a lot of other famous people, right. That's oh, come through your household. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, wow, what an environment, what a, what an eclectic environment where, you know, you can look back on some of these folks and who, you know, unfortunately have since passed, Mm -hmm. but to kind of think, wow, that was in your space. And to your point, it's not that, um, I mean, some of that was cultivated, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm sure has had like an impression on you growing up. Well, you know, I was reflecting on like, what kind of environment did I come up in? Because people always see Detroit as this hardcore blue collar town, which it was, blue collar workers who made some of the high, the highest wages in the world during the period when I was raised there. But I also have to remember the PhD in psychology lived across the street, who was the president of a junior college that became a community college. Then right next door to him was the first African-American woman to get a master's in library science. And her husband also was a PhD. And then down the street was two accountants, and my dad was an accountant as well. And then down the street was a lawyer. And then, of course, we had Marvin Gaye around the corner and Paul Williams of The Temptations around the corner and Barry Gordy Sr. up the street two blocks over, Aretha Franklin around the corner, Willie Horton, the baseball player. So it was this neighborhood of of African-Americans who really were at the top of their game and had accomplished a lot. And that, you know, we took that environment for granted when I was a kid. It was only as an adult after I left Detroit and I reflected on, okay, what kind of environment did you come from? And I realized, wow, that's pretty powerful to have people like that who were really accomplished in, in what they, you know, what their their mission was in life and what their profession was. Wow, just to live amongst all that, quote, Black excellence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that it's a very upwardly mobile and even middle-class community mm-hmm. in which you thrived in growing up. So how do we make the leap from wanting to be a doctor, and then switching to becoming a lawyer that, you know, now you are a professor. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the lead to the professor. Which makes sense when you have, when you live in a neighborhood where you have all these PhDs, so I get it, right? Right, right. But it's like, but that's a leap for you. Yeah, it was a leap. So when my mom died, my father sent me a folder that she kept on me. And in there was my application for the SAT and what I wanted to accomplish. And I had PhD on there, but I had PhD in pharmacology for physics, because physics was my favorite class in high school. But more importantly, um, I have a cousin who's now deceased, who was a PhD MD. So I kind of, and that was part of the impetus for me being in the hard sciences in the first place. And then he went on to not practice medicine, but to be a professor. And so, you know, he was always sort of my, my role model coming up. So at some point when I was toying between law school and becoming an academic, and my mentor pushed me towards academia. I said, well, my cousin's already doing it, so I can do that as well. And so why the humanities? My mother. When I really reflected on what is it that I really, really love to do, and all I really love to do is read and write. Mm-hmm. I can do the other stuff, but at the end of the day, I get up in the morning, I write. I get up in the morning, I read. Always with my coffee. I don't care what's going on. I don't care where I am in the world. I block out that hour, two hours to read and write every morning. And when I reflect on it, I've been writing all my life. Mm -hmm. I I remember the first play I wrote, I was in the fifth or sixth grade. 
I was editor of our <laughs> elementary school newspaper, um, wow. stuff like that, that I've been keeping journals since I was nine years old. Things that wow. I thought were just pretty normal that I realized, no, that's not really normal. You know, it, it's normal perhaps to be introduced to that, but then you sustain it an entire lifetime. Mm. Which I've done. And what was this play in the fifth grade? Do you still have it? Uh-uh, and I don't even remember. <laughs> I just know <laughs> it was funny. And I have, I do not have a humorous bone in my body, but it was funny because I remember the audience laughed. Oh, uh, well, I don't neat. remember the play. That's neat. And, and I like the idea around journaling and yeah. you still do that. That's still part of your, um, not just, oh, I'm journaling to write, uh, which is fine from, you know, if that's what some people do, but it just, it seems to me that your journaling is also part of you sort of um, holding space for yourself. Yeah. When I had my son, I remember um, I couldn't journal in the morning because he always got up early. And I, you know, I wonder if he still gets up at 530. I don't know. And I just couldn't beat him up. I wasn't Toni Morrison. I couldn't get up at 430 and start writing. But after You dinner, couldn't beat the sun rising? No, no, I can't do that. I know she used to love to do that. I can't do it. But after dinner, um, when he and his dad were cleaning up the kitchen, I grab my journal and go to Starbucks. That's how I develop my Starbucks habit. I go to the neighborhood Starbucks and sit there and write until about 8.39, come back and put my son to bed and then continue to write. With the writing and with your mom being um, the inspiration to why you shifted to the humanities and even just around your own consciousness to have all of these, you know, Black intellectuals and artists around you in the community that you grew up, did being a person that self-identifies as Black, as African descendant, did that play a role in your understanding of why you do what you do even today? Yeah, I think definitely. I'm also thinking about how, because Detroit was, and some people argue this, Detroit was very central to the Black arts movement because Dudley Randall's broadside press was there. And without Mm -hmm. broadside press, we'd have a lot of writers who are in print today who may not have gotten in print. So, because Detroit was such an Afrocentric environment, there was no way, even being educated in predominantly white schools until high school, there was no way to escape your blackness. So you're walking downtown Detroit, hey, sister, hey, brother, hey, this, say that. (laughs) You know, y'all always felt protected and loved. And, you know, I'm not saying that it was idyllic, nor was it sort of this, you know, this sort of haven. It had its problems, but I never questioned my blackness. And I recall, like, even in elementary school, I remember, this is a story, how I got introduced to Morrison. So um, we got caught in the rain at the symphony orchestra, and I'm the only Black kid, or maybe one or two Black kids. And of course, you know, my hair just shriveled up. My straight (laughs) hair just shriveled up in all these curls, right? The whole fried dyed and pressed to the side just started to do its own thing? It did. It did its own thing. It would not lay down missionary style, as Ellis Walker calls it. And, it, you know, and the kids teased me. And so I came home and I shampooed my hair. And of course, saturated, all our hair, when it's saturated with water, would kind of lay straight for a minute, right? <laughs> so I said to my mother, I said, well, what if I just keep water in my hair all the time? And she said, you'll have a wet head. And when I came home from school the next day, my mother handed me a copy of The Bluest Eye. And she said, you need to read this. Mm. And it has such a profound found impact on me because I could not understand how you could be ensconced in self-hatred. Although my mother saw 
that self-negation and that self-hatred beginning to rise in me after you know, three or four years of being socialized in predominantly white educational environments. And she knit that stuff in the bud. And I never again questioned who I was, where I was, and my Blackness and what I was going to do with it. Never again. You know, it was a powerful moment. And then from that point forward, every time Morrison released a novel, my mother would buy me a copy and we would sit and read it together. And she did that all the way until she died. The bond between yourself and your mother, especially, I can see how how strong that bond is, how deep the love that you both have for reading and, and, and writing and literature, and I'm sure critically thinking about the issues that present themselves. And, you know, there's something I think that when, you know, even too, as a mom, when you're reading to your child or reading with your child as your child mm-hmm. ages, that there's this nice sense of intimacy that happens even in that exchange. There's so many things happening at the Mm -hmm. same time, right? You're not only modeling a particular behavior that we value in our society, but I mean, there is something where you're sitting next to your child and it's close and they Mm -hmm. may lean on you and they may listen and tell you, can you read that again? And then as they get older and develop other kinds of skills, you know, it could be more conversant in that way. Yeah, And I could just see just... I'm sure there were so many more moments where beyond even the bluest eye where she's like, oh, we're going to use this book as mm-hmm. a platform for us to have this other kind of conversation that it's apparent that you, Michelle, need to have. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was real good about like if we had a question coming up, as, as even as adults, she would say, well, you need to go downstairs and get such and such a book off the shelf and you need to read it. And that would be the end of it. Mm. And when you finish reading it, come back, we'll talk about it. So she let me read anything. I remember one time in undergrad getting in trouble because I read the Marquis de Sade. And she said, and I had a counselor say, you know, your problem is you're reading the Marquis de Sade. I said, no, my dad is Catholic and I've been socialized in a Catholic environment, Catholic and Lutheran. And my mother told me I needed to read the Marquis de Sade to understand what happened to women in particular in France during a particular historical moment if they were not of the elite. What happened to poor women? They wound up in the convent. What happened in the convent? They often got raped. So that was her way of uh, creating, or, you know, first of all, anything that was banned, my mother had me read. She told me it's the reason why they're banning literature. <laughs> like D.H. Lawrence. Rebel. You know? Yeah, yeah. She had me read D.H. Lawrence before I even got to undergrad. It's like, oh, okay. You know, the, the neighbors were like passing around editions of D.H. Lawrence because they thought it was pornography. My mother said, this isn't pornography. Or like Henry Miller. I read Henry Miller, too. Mm-hmm. Anais Nin. All those writers who were considered not appropriate for a child or a teenager. I read that work. How many books would you say you all owned in the house growing up? About 5,000. Wow. Yeah. Is that yeah. still very much this, the case? Are the 5,000 plus still there? Or have you been sort of taking the book slowly from your family home? The book my father gave me was his, wherever it is, his French book when he went to France in the 60s. No, he won't let me have any books, even <laughs> though my name is stamped in all of them. What was your favorite book and what was your mother's? Wow. You know, when my mom died, we had this debate with the family. And my dad said Cahilge Brown's work was my fate. My dad's, my mom favorite. And I think that's because his work sat on the coffee table in the living room and she often referred to it. But I'm going to say my mother's favorite work is either Paradise or Jazz mm. and by Toni Morrison. And my favorite work is, is Jazz by Toni Morrison. Any coincidence that you both share the same title or did you come to it in different times? We came to it at the same time. 
because <laughs> we read we read Morrison's works together. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think when I reflect on who I am, I'm more constructed by choices that my mother made and then ostensibly my father because he supported her. Then I realized mm. that when I look at who I am, there's there's some autonomy, but there's a lot of construction going on. I'm the eldest daughter. And so, you know, my brother is a boy and he's going to do this thing. But when my mother gave birth to me, first of all, I was supposed to be companion to my brother. But I turned out to be too much of a girl for my brother. <laughs> you know, I'm the ballet girl. My baby sister is the football girl. So he finally got his little brother, but it wasn't me. Um, but my mom, she consciously constructed me. When I really reflect on it, the ballet lessons, violin lessons, elocution lessons, reading, writing, art, drama, everything. The heart. I was in the hard sciences because when she went to New York City Public School, she went to Central Commercial, the business school. Because my grandfather wanted to make sure everyone had a, you know, a pliable trade. But my mother didn't get the hard sciences background. So she made sure that I was educated in the hard science. Really interesting. I would have never chosen hard sciences for myself. I was interested in science, but not enough to study it for four years in, in high school, when you're supposed to be having fun in high school. So what was that pivotal moment that confirmed to you that you want to work in this space, the space of African-American history and literature and women's studies? And, you know, whether it's writing, specifically about James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, even just some of your more academic work? A combination of my family life, but then I have to give attribution to Dr. Carolyn Denard, who recommended me for a core foundation pre-doctoral fellowship. And primarily in her letter of recommendation said, all I needed was the credentials because I already had the literature under my belt. And that just that <laughs> floored me when she said that. She also All that reading something. paid off. <laughs> yeah, all that reading paid off. You know, I forgot who it was that said, um, the famous cartoonist, I think, who said, you can, your children can read their way into the Ivy League. And I, I strongly believe in that. I've encouraged my son to read a lot for that very reason. The whole world opens up to you when you read. But, you know, she said that about me and it was like, okay, this is really what my life has been on track for, is to really spend my life reading and writing and sharing that knowledge with younger people and in turn having them share their knowledge. So, you know, normally in a journey, we have that call to adventure. But then once you're on the adventure, it's the road. Act two, the road. Tell us, what is your passion? Travel. <laughs> it really is. I like being disoriented and having to figure it out. So when I land in country and there's cacophony of noise, and even when I feel slightly intimidated, even when I can't find where I need to go, even when I can't read the language, all of that is stimulating. I always tell people I don't do substances because all I have to do is get on a plane and land in a foreign country and I get the <laughs> endorphin rush, you know, like some people get it when they do other things or when they run. That's it for me. And if I master the environment, not master it, if I can negotiate the environment without any mishap, then I feel good. And even with the mishaps, I had one mishap when I was traveling with my son. But my son and I were in Spain and I got pickpocketed and I negotiated that environment so well and got to the police station to file the report. My son turned to me, he said, mom, I said, what he said, I didn't know you knew how to speak Spanish because it all came back under duress, you know, which was remarkable to me. But even then I didn't feel, you know, I was worried about our trip and how we were going to complete the trip without a credit card. 
but I wasn't really too upset about it. And it was a lesson learned because my son needed to learn how to maintain composure in adverse circumstances in a foreign country. Like you just don't lose it. And I also wanted him to learn travel mercies, that when you're stateside and people you come across visitors from foreign countries, stop and help because you'll get the travel mercies back on the other end. And no matter where I am in the world, I always get travel mercies. Mm. Always. Someone that's always seeing the confusion in my face, stopping and breaking right into English. I don't know why I look like I speak <laughs> English, but I do. Breaking right into English and giving me what I need, the information that I need to you know, accomplish whatever it is I'm trying to do. So traveling is my passion. I'll say my second passion is writing. Mm. I don't always write publishable texts. Although after hearing Jasmine Ward the other night, mm-hmm. man, she held no punches. She just let the folks in the room have it and talking about racism and the impact of racism and white supremacy on her in a way that I've never heard anyone speak um, right. in that kind of environment at that level. She gave me the the wherewithal and even the courage to continue writing the way that I write. Because mm-hmm. one of the challenges I've, I've always had is people have always told me I need to tone it down. Tone it down. This is my life. You need to tone it down. You know, even in fiction, how you've lived your life impacts on even how you tell the story. That's right. Yeah. That's and I've right. just, I've never compromised. Like I won't write, construct the the bad Black father, the absent Black father, the rapist Black father, because the men who lived in my neighborhood weren't those kind of men. And my father definitely wasn't that kind of man. Right. So my frame for understanding what it means to be Black and a father comes from my own father, my own grandfather, who went to work every day, took care of their families, um, raised their children, provided for them may not have been as emotionally accessible because of the generation in which they were born, but definitely did what was expected of them as men in this society. Well, two things. One, I, in terms of your passion around traveling, mm-hmm. I think that you are awesome as a traveler, right? Um, because I recognize even in myself, as I've gotten older, there's some anxiety <laughs> that I realize that I think I have, especially when I'm doing research and I have to travel and I'm traveling by myself. Yeah, There's this um, anxiety around making sure that when I show up in these different physical spaces, like, you know, there is external perceptions of who I am, what I represent to them. Right. Because right. I'm sure, too, that when you've traveled abroad to like northern Africa and different places in Europe, you know, unfortunately, there's this weird perception or negative perception of particularly African descended women as being prostitutes for some yes, reason. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, no, I'm a tourist just like everyone else. I'm here to kind of take in the culture and the sites. And why is it that, you know, you might be looking at me, following me, things like that, where mm-hmm. I'm just like, wow, how we move through these different spaces, even as traveler, even if they can tell, okay, this is a person who's from the U.S., right? Just by the way we carry ourselves and the way we dress, it's almost like, wow. So I, I am in awe of you in terms of how you're able to have your wherewithal and a very kind of conscious sense of self when you're traveling while Black in these various yeah. spaces that I'm like, whoa, this is incredible. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, when I was in Morocco, I had to don a hijab and a kaftan 
in order to negotiate the suit because I was really being harassed. And when I finally, through um, an Arabic translator and then speaking French with the woman who ran the Riyadh, she told me it was my hair that they associate locks with drugs. So the reason why Mm -hmm. I was being approached so much is because people thought I was in Morocco looking for drugs. And I said, well, was it Turkey or Morocco? But I I know one of the books, Midnight Express, that I remember reading, (laughs) those folks went to jail. So I'm not trying to go to jail. (laughs) It makes no sense to me. It's like, you don't do contraband out the country. That makes no sense. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. The U.S. Embassy can't even come and get me out. No. Uh, but what I do will say is that when I travel, faces are more of people of color and Black folks, or African-descended folks and Africans that people want to give credit to. Hmm. So, for example, when I was in Granada, and I, I think you went to Granada too, you know, all those Spanish people there, and then our tour guide turns out to be a Senegalese guy who spoke five languages. Wow. And he jokingly yeah. said to me and my partner in English, how ironic is it that I'm the only African tour guide here at the Alhambra? Wow. Yeah. So that was very interesting to me. But I'm, you know, when I do travel, you do have to take precautions as a woman, period. And then as a African descended woman, I think in particular, because the stigma of what our bodies represent uh, in terms of licentiousness and sexuality and hypersexuality and, you know, men of the world think they have access to it is real. And I, but I will say this, the safest place I have ever felt in the world was in Dubai. Yeah. So I think if you are an African descended woman, Dubai felt very safe to me because of their own cultural sort of ethos about the protection of women. Now we can talk about women, you know, being under siege and being under the thumb of men and patriarchy, but I moved through Dubai sometimes as late as 12 o'clock at night and never felt threatened. First of all, there are cameras everywhere. So if anything happens, everything's going to get caught on camera. (laughs) And I talked to some Canadian women who said the few times when they've had incidents of maybe sexual assault or robbery against women, it was shut down so quick. Mm. It's very apparent in those environments you are not to harm women, at least not in public. I don't know what happens at home, but in public, you don't put your hands on women. So that was real refreshing. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, that's, you know, that's a place, mm-hmm. although people who've been have said, oh, it's like the Vegas of the Middle East. Yes, right? it is. In yeah. terms of the excess and all that there is and that there, it's like a metropolis in the middle of the desert. But I still think that it's beautiful there. And just, just to see and travel and be someplace else, I think it's wonderful and powerful and even enlightening in one's own perspective, right? So Yeah. Well, Dubai has some, what I call um, havens, artistic Haven. So there's the Jamil Art Center is there. And then there's this whole warehouse district. It's so funky. So like near an industrial area and they've turned all these old warehouses into artist studios and galleries and coffee houses and chocolate shop and um, an independent film theater. So you've got those two spaces and there, oh, Quincy Jones has a jazz club there in the Versace (laughs) Hotel. (laughs) Great place to have tea and nobody will bother you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So there are some gyms in in Dubai. So it's not, it is glitzy and over the top decadent, but then you've got the other side of it. It's Mm -hmm. real artsy and funky and and cool and inviting. Yeah. And then your other passion that you identified was writing. And I really like your point around writing stories that edify a particular voice and perspective of African descendants, right? That there's intentionality around, okay, no, I'm not going to write about the abusive father or absent father figure, but, you know, there does exist in real life 
Mm-hmm. African descendants that, you know, we're not embattled with pathology, yeah. <laughs> right? And negativity and that, and not that, oh, you know, it can't be without drama as part of the storyline, right? right? But that we're not edifying these negative stereotypes that we see predominate everywhere else that we go. And so I think that's powerful and intentional in even your approach in writing to say, let's talk about these other real experiences and voices and stories. Right. Right. I think it's important that we have balance. Black life is not monolithic, mm. in, in particularly not in the U.S. It's very diverse. And I've always had sort of the challenge of wrestling with, like when I was a kid, reading literature by Black authors that was just as divorced from my real life as reading about Heathcliff on the on the whatever in, in England. It's like, <laughs> I can't relate to either one of these. So where are the stories for me? And, you know, I recall I was in a writing workshop with a pretty famous writer right now, won't call her name. And I read a story. <laughs> I read a story about two African-American women, both of whom were wives of accountants. And the story took place in the late 1950s, early 60s. And the one African-American woman had a nervous breakdown. And when she came out of the breakdown, was released from the hospital, which was pretty common amongst Black folks. That's another thing we don't talk about, the number of Black women who wind up in mental institutions in the 50s and 60s. But anyway, when she came out of the, the uh, psychiatric hospital, she comes to the home of her girlfriend and she thanks her girlfriend's husband for the support he's giving her, who had nothing to do with supporting her and not her girlfriend. Wow. Yeah. And so the, the writer says she didn't say anything about my writing style or the, the plot or the construction of the characters, you know, character development. Her main question was, it's implausible that there are two black women married to accountants in this historical moment. And I looked at her and I said, so you've never read Paul Marshall, mm. who, you know, has a novel. I forgot which novel is, Praise Song the Widow. Yeah. The husband is an accountant and he dies and she goes off to Barbados right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Barbados. And then she looked at me and one by one, the white women in the workshop came to my support. And then one day, everybody, you know, the cackle finished. I said, well, this really is the story of my mother and her girlfriend, both of whom were married to some two of the first black accountants in the state of Michigan. So this is autobiographical. So you can't tell me that it didn't exist because it did exist. So I say all that to say, even amongst black writers, there's a certain way that they're constructed to see the world that negate the diversity of our experiences as African-Americans. It's like, how can you say that? But you read the literature of the Harlem Renaissance and, you know, you have accomplished black women. And I'm thinking of Jesse, not Jesse Fawcett, Nella Larson. And, and, but you're negating even the taught history, the learned history that you should have known as a literature major. You should have known this from the Harlem Renaissance. You know, this reminds me of who the editors are in the publishing industry and who actually greenlights projects. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, there's a lot of reification that's happening. Yeah. Right. You know, we have even us as people of color um, and African descendants also reifying anti-blackness. Yes, we do. We do. <laughs> right. And then and then, of course, and and we know what it's like to be published and then having to pitch your stories and editors have a very myopic view sometimes as to, well, these are the kind of stories that we think that the audience would attend to. And again, it's the same reification of stereotypes over and over. So we're just sort of propagating the same kind of stuff and it ends up being quite tautological, right? The cycle that we just can't get out of simply because, and then the rationale is, well, there's a demand for it. It's like, no, that's sort of the predominant narrative and that we need to be able to shift that. And I think that there are some younger and newer writers coming onto the scene that are trying to do that, that they're very intentional around, oh, 
let let us elevate these particular voices, these women's voices, mm-hmm. um, being intentional around, well, I'm going to edify young women of color voices in ways that we don't often see in text right. or edifying issues in a particular way. And mm-hmm. so I think that stuff is, it's powerful when we have the space and the platform to, to do that and to push forth our work out into the public. But, you know, we have these gatekeepers and these publishing companies that make it a mm-hmm. challenge. And that's why people do all this self-publishing but I'm kind of, you know, we can have a conversation offline about how I yeah, feel about, about that. self-publishing, <laughs> but um, not poo-pooing on it. But as a writer, there are a lot of things that rights that you're kind of giving up and just your the treatment of you mm-hmm. as the author. It's just mm-hmm. highly problematic. But and then you have to deal with the distribution, which is the mm, hardest part. Very much mm-hmm. so. Now, as part of the road for you, mm-hmm. because in addition to being a professor, in which now you are formally retired from. Yes. But that doesn't mean that you are done doing this work. So you give these lectures all over the place, all over the country, all over the world. And then on top of that, you decided I'm going to be a content advisor and Mm -hmm. a certified instructional designer, which to me, I'm like, where did that come from? And so... (laughs) What was the pathway that you decided to take and how do, how, do you, how do you show up in these spaces as a Black person, as a Black woman doing this stuff, having the pedigree that you have in your background, but then entering this terrain that I can only imagine is highly gendered? It's highly gendered. So I was on an editing team when I moved back to Washington, D.C. from Ann Arbor, Michigan, when I left the University of Michigan. And the editing team was comprised of me as a main editor and then a bunch of instructional designers. And I got their work product. We were designing training for, I think, Department of Transportation, and it was training mandated by the White House, believe it or not. And I can't even remember what the issue was. But I looked at their work product and I said, oh, they do exactly what we do every day as professors for a fraction of the cost. How do I get in on this? (laughs) (laughs) That's that little entrepreneurial slash Right. You're like, I'm Detroit in- all day, every day. We got to hustle. <laughs> right. I saw the invoices and I said, oh my goodness, look at how much you're paying these people for designing training using adult learning theory, which you and I know as professors, we intuit, we, well, we know it either by trial and error or formally educated. We have to learn adult learning theory. And particularly if you leave like research one schools and tier one schools and you're mm-hmm. suddenly teaching to a population that's really, really diverse in terms of their learning style. I always tell people, you don't really have to know how to teach at an Ivy League or a Research One or a Tier One school, but you drop down to Tier Two or you go to a community college and it's a whole different ballgame. You have to know how to teach. I tried to rebrand myself and get jobs and I could never get a job as an instructional designer. So I went back to grad school. I said, forget it. I'll go back to grad school. I'll get credentials in instructional design. And as soon as I got those credentials, I went out on the market and got all kinds of offers. You know, coupled with my background as a university professor, the credentials of PhD and instructional design, everything just opened up. And I feel called daily. I get people trying to bring me on projects. I'm selective in the projects that I take. I choose projects that I like or projects that'll further whatever my professional goal is. Like right now, I really, really, I'm Adobe Captivate Certified Specialist, which means I use Adobe Captivate software to design online training and learning. And I really want to master that. So now I'm just looking for product projects that allow me to use Adobe Captivate and really, really learn it. You know, being certified is one thing, 
applying it on a daily basis is a whole different ballgame. Well, that's interesting in and of itself in terms of just that pivot and the lack of fear that you had going in as a university professor from, you know, University of Michigan to even Howard. And then Mm -hmm. to say, you know what, I'm going to do this other thing because there are certain um, parallels to, to yeah. your point, right? Where it's like, I have skills that are transferable. And that I think that as African descendants, we are pretty amenable and flexible <laughs> and entrepreneurial mm-hmm. too, oftentimes by, um, you know, it's just by reality, right? We're in yeah. circumstances where you have to kind of like, okay, I need to have this as my main, but I have these other things um, that I'm interested in and that I need to do as part of my hustle. But somehow still you dabble in these other spaces as well so that your passion around writing and your passion for traveling still, mm-hmm. um, you can still ignite those. Yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But you know what? I have to also give kudos to my dad because the entrepreneurial spirit comes from my father. Mm-hmm. So although my father had his undergraduate degree is in accounting and he was in graduate school for a master's in taxation, my father's main career was as a logistician mm-hmm. and he was a top logistician for the Department of the Army until he retired. But my father hit a point in his career where he thought his career was going to become stagnant and he wasn't going to get promoted. So what does my father do? He started a trucking company because he had it on the accounting side, he had a client who wanted to start a trucking company, but my father ran the numbers and told the client, you really can't afford this. So let me get the trucks and we'll either, I think they partnership. Mm -hmm. And so my dad ran a trucking company for years. His trucking company hauled steel. I was his bookkeeper. Thank you. (laughs) So I got bookkeeping background too. You know, here I am 11, 12 years old. I'm keeping his books, you know, first I started off just by sorting all the receipts and then he taught me bookkeeping. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so that comes from from my father. He was until my father moved to Metro DC. My father always had multiple streams of revenue. Yeah, so I can see where you got your little hustle thing because he's mm-hmm. just like. And then also of the time when your mom is a stay at home yeah. mom, but then she's also the the captain of the ship, right? Yes. He also has a different type of responsibility. And then still being able to be as a provider, but then entrepreneurial, right? And being very selective in terms of the kinds of opportunities that he's going to take on that helps to support the family too. And and you are still very close with your dad too, so. Yeah, he's just such an inspiration. In terms of lessons that you learned along the way, failures that you experienced, and how did you turn things around and what continues to motivate you in doing the work that you're doing? Well, my first academic failure was in the 11th grade because I got caught skipping school. Um, I skipped school to go to the library for probably about three weeks, four weeks, maybe the whole first half of the semester. So I, I was I had a little boyfriend. Um, I knew better than to go, like get caught any place with him because that was unacceptable. So I always told him, meet me at the library. And we would meet at the library, the Detroit Public Library, the main library on Woodward in the map section because it was quiet there. And he would do his homework and I would do my homework and he would go to school and I'd sit there and read. You know, it's interesting. They never called the truant officers on me because I would sit and then, and I would read a novel a day. Wow. Well, something happened that my father found out and although I had good grades because I would go to school to take my exams, my father told them to fail me in my three core courses for the first semester, first card marking. So I got kicked off the cheer team because of that. Wow. Yeah, I was devastated. I was <laughs> devastated. And I never failed like that again. I never did that again. And But my mother's proposal was, since I was 16, her proposal was to allow me to take the entrance exam and going off to college for early admission. And my father told me, no, I had to stay in high school and received my high school diploma. 
But my mother realized that I was bored and it was time for me to just go on to college. Mm. Yeah, so that was my first failure. It was a valuable lesson because I think when you're young and you're a high academic achiever, you need to fail at something because failure is the part of life that you're not going to achieve all your goals. And if you fail young, you know how to recoup. I think if you fail when you're older after having had a lifetime of successes, you don't necessarily rebound as easily as you do when you're younger at a very (laughs) young age. Three, where we land. In terms of where we land now as part of your journey, both personally and professionally, what are you most excited about? What are you looking to? Right now, my autonomy. It's Mm. taken me a long time to get here. Um, where I can work when I want to work, work for whom I want to work for, not work if I don't want to. That's been one of my goals. So I'm really excited about that. My two latest projects, the research on the midwives in Fairfax County, I'm excited about. I'm in the midst of that right now, having come across those documents in the court records, historical court records, when I was doing research for another project on the Woodlawn Plantation, which was the plantation of George Washington's nephew and Martha Washington's granddaughter. They married each other. And George Mm -hmm. Washington gave them Woodlawn Plantation as a gift, a wedding gift. And my project was to look at the hundred odd Africans on that property for whom there are no, you know, there's scant records. And so I, I went through the archival documents at the courthouse and then went to the George Washington Library and went through their archival documents. But in the midst of this, I came across all these registrations for midwives of African descent during slavery. And it just hit me. You know, Fairfax County and the city of Alexandria had a sizable free Black population. And to whom were this Black community or this Black community, to whom were they dependent on for services? There was some fluidity between people of African descent and whites for services. But for the most part, the Black population was dependent on their own. So yeah, it was saying the reason there were Black midwives in Fairfax County, that makes a whole lot of sense. But I don't know why it kind of escaped me when I'm looking at this landscape that, you know, that I live in, that I never really processed that. So that's a project that I'm interested in and that I'm working on. And then, of course, I'm always working on Morrison. For years, I proposed uh, the more uh, talk on Morrison's life at the Smithsonian. I'm going to say dating back to as early as 2005. And someone from the Smithsonian contacted me about doing a talk on for Black, Women's History Month. And they wanted me to take the music section of it. And then at that moment on the phone, I said, well, you know, we really should do something for Morrison because Morrison had just recently died. And the Mm -hmm. person I was speaking to said, oh yeah, my husband said that last night. We need to do something about Morrison because Morrison just recently died. So Morrison's (laughs) death, for you guys to realize you need to do a talk on her, a day seminar on her. Wow. So I'm really excited about that because I've been wanting to do that for a long time, more than a decade. And it's finally coming to fruition. I think that is fantastic. And not only timely, but it's about time. Right. It's about time, yeah. It's about time. And were you also involved with Toni Morrison? Yeah, I was a founding board member for the Toni Morrison Society. I was a secretary treasurer. Well, look at that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like last time I talked to her, she looked, she said, Oh, yeah, Michelle, that's right. You know, it felt, you know, Morrison had this way of when Morrison talked to you, I don't care if it's in a receiving line, if it's in the line waiting for you to get your book signed, or she's sitting beside you in a formal meeting, 
she looked at you directly in the eye and spoke to you. And you felt like you were the only person in the room talking to her. She had an art of doing that, making you feel significant, no matter no matter what the occasion was. And, and so, you know, I, I relish those memories I have of her. One time I was in a meeting and Janetta Cole was there and a whole bunch of other people. And someone asked her, well, Miss Morrison, how do you write your novels? And she said, like Michelle, with a yellow pen and a, a yellow pad and a pen. And I just said, whoa. <laughs> But I also had this moment of faux pas. We were walking across a, we were walking through a library at Georgia State and there was a showcase with pictures of her. And I knew she was behind me, but I wasn't really processing. She was right behind me. And I looked at a picture of her when she was at Howard and I said, wow, Morrison sure was pretty. And she said, I sure was really loud. And I said, oh God, I said it in the past tense. You can't talk like that around a language person. She heard me. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you this, I saw Pieces, um, Pieces I Am. Yes. That, that documentary of her. And I mean, I, I never met her. I admired her work. Um, and I admired her from really, as I became a wife and mother myself, learned to appreciate the kind of sacrifices that she made her, you know, in order to be professionally successful. Yeah. Right. And so that's not something that we often talk about or celebrate in our community and even acknowledge. Right. So, you know, we can even encourage our children like, oh, to have these particular or to be able to experience particular benchmark successes around. Oh, okay, you got your degree. You're doing this. You're doing that. And that almost the expectation is if you are female, that you got to do all that and then somehow balance having healthy children, intelligent and productive children, a great relationship and a working household in some capacity. And that's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. A lot to happen, but, you know, and to manage and seeing that and, and seeing that in the film again and seeing how spunky she was too. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, you can be all of that Mm -hmm. and not lose yourself. Yeah. She had a strong constitution. I don't know how she maintained Mm herself the way that she did. She will always say that she, her family supported her, that without her parents, she would have never accomplished what she accomplished. You know, there were times when they would take care of her children. She had a large network of Black women writers. Remember in, in the film, she talked about how she got someone to take, what was it? Was it Paula Giddings? Someone typed her manuscript for a carrot cake. <laughs> I didn't, right, right, yeah, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, that I was when she Barbie. was on uh, Howard's... Uh, campus like people were she was known for her carrot cake her carrot cakes yeah <laughs> and, and now it, it sort of crystallizes in my mind like no matter where I am with her if there's food served she will always say where's the cake she mm-hmm. always asked about the cake and I'm thinking why is she asking about the cake why is the cake so important right <laughs> but I didn't know that she baked like these really good carrot cakes and so how how do you see this Toni Morrison um, presentation at the Smithsonian in February of 2020 and then the the work around the black um, midwives of Fairfax County how do you see all of that you know connecting back to your call to adventure it's always about black women. Always. Mm. I'm always making sure that I promote the history and the works of Black women. I'm, I'm really always focused on that because, you know, one narrative that I have, and I'm going to say it's a novel, even though the whole first half of it is written in poetic verse, series of poems, is the story of the Black woman who was Victor Hugo's lover, who actually rescued his daughter, Adele, down in Barbados. And one of the trips I'm making before the first of the year 
is go down to Barbados to do that research. Hopefully I can do some archival research, even, even though I know other scholars have attempted it and they haven't come up with it. Or if no more than to be steeped in the environment so that when I replicate this environment in my fiction, it's real. It feels mm. real. So everything mm. I do eventually coalesces into furthering the narrative of Black women and particularly in the U.S. And if you have some takeaways... Don't measure yourself against others. Mm. You have your own journey to walk. If you're seeking success or if you're seeking um, affirmation of what you're doing, it will never come when you expect it to come. It's never as timely as you want it to be. It's either premature when you're not ready or it comes much later than you expect it. Um, Be true to your vision. Don't give up. If you have to have a side hustle to pay your mortgage or your rent, do that, but stay true to the vision. No matter what you do, if you're a writer, you get up and write every day. It's not about, it is in some way about the publishing, but ultimately if you're not writing, you're not going to get published anyway. So you always have to do the work and to thy own self, be true. Always be true to yourself. If it's not right, it's okay to walk away. It is really okay. And Mm -hmm. always know that you're more resilient than you even think you are. And I, you know, when I taught, I always told my African-American students in particular, or anyone coming from the African diaspora whose ancestors were enslaved by these Europeans. If you are the descendant of that, you are more resilient than you believe you are, despite everything that's going epigenetically, despite the fact (laughs) we're predisposed to all these diseases. At the end of the day, you can still walk that walk and produce. And always believe that because if your ancestors endured what they endured, what we're enduring right now is a freaking cakewalk. I mean, look, I can walk past Two blocks from me or three blocks from me is the largest domestic slave trader in the United States, the headquarters of the largest domestic slave trader, which is now the Urban League headquarters. And I can walk up in there and see that stuff. And I don't have to worry about anybody grabbing me, selling me down the river. I mean, Mm. it's just a whole different historical moment. And, And we need to honor that. When I walk down Duke Street to the river, I honor the fact that my ancestors walked down the street in shackles. Sometimes aboard a ship and other times, believe it or not, they walked from Alexandria, Virginia to Mississippi and New Orleans. Okay. They walked them in couples. How do you do that to human beings? So all I say is honor who you are, know where you are, know how your black body moves through space and don't ever give up on your deathbed. Still be imagining what's going to happen in the next life. Just imagining yourself moving through that space. Because this isn't the, you know, I don't think this is the last hurrah. I think there's more after this. Well, there you have it, Dr. Michelle Sims Burton. Thank you for being on Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. And thank you for inviting me. And thank you, audience, for listening. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.